재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 And we're back. We're talking about Korea's rice market, uh, the farmers who have been struggling, these unsustainable government subsidies, the non-competitiveness of uh, the farmers in the global landscape. Give us your thoughts. Text us at pound 1013 for 51. We're going to be joined by an expert from the UK to get a more global perspective on this. Uh, joining us here in the studio once again from Catholic University, Professor Yang j u n s e k Okay, aside from the issues of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and as you say, uh, there would be some big decisions that have to be made here. Um, if the Korean government and the policymakers had its druthers, and you just said it, it would always be off the table for them. They believe in certain things like food security, and there are reasons why they are continuing to subsidize these uh, farmers. How sustainable is that, though, in the long term, in a vacuum? Is, is it sustainable? Well, it really depends on how much government budget uh, they're willing to throw to this cause. Uh, given uh, some serious problems I see currently and in the future in terms of government tax receipts, uh, I would say that it will be very hard to make it sustainable, but it actually depends on political will. If they put this as a priority, higher priority than anything else like defense or education, then, yeah, they can sustain it. I'm not quite sure that's the best use yeah. of our money, uh, especially when we give it to production subsidies. Uh, but uh, they, they can have alternate ways of supporting the farmers, welfare, uh, stronger welfare system that's not tied to production. Mm. I think that's actually a smarter move. Uh, one of the ways that they're supporting the uh, farmers now is to give a subsidy based on their land, uh, size of their land. And that it turns out that richer people are getting more subsidies because typically richer people have more land. Mm. So I think uh, the current subsidy policies need to have separate or, or different priorities. Let's bring in from the UK. We have professor from Plymouth University, international development <laughs> expert, Professor Zanzidar Rahman. Hello. Hello. Professor, Hello. yes, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, one question that we would like to ask you first is the concept of food sovereignty. Could you explain that to our listeners, please, and why it's important? Okay. Uh, food sovereignty is a relatively new concept, not quite new. It's about 20 years old now because it was first raised in the World Food Summit 1996. The main concept is taking food as a right of the people to a healthy and culturally appropriate food. And it also has specified a method to produce it, that is, it's producing through an ecologically and sustainable method, and also providing the people to the right to choose their own food and devise the agriculture system. So at a broad level, you can think of it as a democratization of the food and agriculture. In the past, it is important because in the past what happened, we are, the poverty and hunger was worldwide and there were quick solutions. For example, Green Revolution, and I do not deny that because Green Revolution focused on producing cereals. Mm -hmm. Depending on which country you look at, it is either rice-based or wheat-based or a, a maize-based Green Revolution, but it in, improved total production, but the, it do not have that concept of sovereignty in it because Expansion of Green Revolution is highly dependent on import of inputs, most importantly fertilizers, inorganic chemical fertilizers, 
The other one is high level of investment in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And at the end, it provided only one element of your diet, that is the carbohydrate. Right. But healthy food is not only carbohydrate, feeding carbohydrate in and out. It needs to be whole healthy diet products. And also the concept itself provides immediately recognize the smallholders as the main player in food market because worldwide it is the smallholder is the main dominating production force. The large farms are dominated only in the in developed countries in the north, but in most of the developing countries, the small farmers who can produce for their own requirements and not really tied to the market. Yeah, very so that is the concept. Yeah, uh, thank you for helping us understand the concept of food sovereignty. Now, yeah. here, Professor Yang, uh, yeah. we mentioned how farmers, um, they're not competitive. These subsidies have not helped them um, become more competitive. Uh, there maybe is a disincentive in place right now, but uh, how can is it too late in the game for Korean farmers, or is there a way to make them more competitive, you feel? Okay, well, I think there's two, uh, two main factors to be considered. One, uh, I'm not an agricultural expert, so I may be wrong on this. Hopefully, uh, if a member of an audience is, then they can correct me. But my knowledge, my understanding is that Korea's uh, mountain-type uh, terrain is not really uh, ideal for producing a lot of agricultural material, uh, agricultural crops at once. Uh, so you're sort of stuck with these small farms with very low productivity. That probably we cannot get over. Mm. So in that sense, uh, from uh, cost per ton, we'll probably always be uh, less competitive than other countries. On the other hand, Koreans seem to have a love for Korean rice. Uh, you know, you see it advertised all the time. This is Korean rice. Even though the price is higher, we always go for Korean rice or Korean type rice. Uh, when they tried importing an American rice that seemed to be a little different from Korean rice, people did not buy it even though the price was cheaper. So in that sense, uh, you may be able to develop some competitiveness uh, based on Korean love for Premium Korean rice. kind of branding. Well, that's yeah. how they would have to go if they want to improve competitiveness. In terms of just producing more tonnage, I don't think Korea mm. is competitive at all. Professor Raman, uh, outside of Korea, is there ways, are there ways for traditional farmers to be competitive when we have these huge conglomerate, gigantic agro industrial firms that really look like they're dominating the market right now around the world? Yeah, they do dominate the market because the way we are hardwired to supply to those uh, big markets because if you follow the concept of food sovereignty uh, as well as if you want to produce from the small farmers, the why need to be competitive for the world market? That is the first question. Why need that, Why we need to sell everything we produce? Mm-hmm. We need to, because food production is a, the farmer is it itself is a producer and a consumer of the product. And the surplus comes to the market. So if we try to produce what we need and come prepare our hunger within our own system, uh, it's, you cannot really look at uh, farming as a business element. That is the problem now. It's looked as a business. So it's competition yeah. formula has to be put in. But that is not the requirement. If you say it's right of people to healthy and culturally appropriate food, that means if you can't produce, someone has to provide it. Whether it makes monetary sense or not, that is not the mm. main case. It's the right of people to have the food. That is the main one. Small farmers nowadays produce surplus 
very much under the pressure of the common market. And mm. that is the reason you are, because we are trying to compete with the global market, other than trying to be self-sufficient in food. That is the my main one. And the way right. it's why these food giants are becoming so powerful because our diet habit, as just the professor said, is we love Korean rice, so even if it's costly, we'll take it. That is the case. We, in a very urbanized system, we look for processed products, and those giant food companies provide that. You hardly see any unprocessed food in anywhere in the market. So that vertical integration is because of our changing food habit. So, Professor And so if we can go back to local produce and locally unprocessed products to take home and cook and then eat, then that item of competitiveness will come down to a large extent. And we will be self-sufficient in your own right, rather than looking mm. for raising export earnings from food production only. Interesting point. So basically, Professor Young, trying to get a return back to the concept of subsistence farming without thinking about the market, right? Well, I don't know if Korea can sustain it. Uh, Korean uh, food uh, self-sufficiency rate is, I think, about 49%. And if you talk about just grains in particular, I think it's less than 10% because we use a lot of grain for animal feed. And uh, Professor uh, uh, Ramani, Raman uh, mentioned yes. that it's not just carbohydrates. It's uh, things like protein and fat as well. That means uh, meat. But in order to produce meat, uh, you actually need more grain to feed to the animals. And Korea just cannot, I think, uh, since we only uh, have grain sufficiency rate about 10%, uh, Korea really can, it's going to be very difficult for Korea to be self-sufficient in mm -hmm. food. We are self-sufficient in rice, partially because of the uh, production subsidies. But if we want to feed everybody in Korea at about the uh, mix of food that we have right now, Korean output of food is have to, uh, would have to grow at least twice. And Which right now, it's not without resources, I don't think thing. it's possible. Professor Rahman, um, yep. how, how does the UK handle these kind of situations with traditional farmers? And in your observations, are there any uh, countries that you feel do a good job of balancing, I suppose, the agricultural uh, interests of uh, bigger companies, but also preserving and uh, enhancing the livelihoods of these more traditional smaller farmers? All right. Uh, if you call, talk about UK or Europe, then the picture is completely different. It is heavily subsidized to a, up to your neck. And the GDP of agriculture to UK or Europe is no more than 5%. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make economic sense. It's the way to, it is more about self-sufficiency in food production, which is comes to cap. That is called common agriculture policy, which heavily subsidizes the farming system. They're trying to reduce the fire subsidy, so we are not going to talk about that. European one okay. is severely subsidized. So the level of subsidies Korea, for example, provides is peanuts compared to this one. Right. But if you look at developing countries, for example, I am from Bangladesh. I will discuss how Bangladesh was uh, in become self-sufficient in food. Mm -hmm. uh, not food, actually. Food grain, just rice. Uh, it, because it was uh, traditionally... Uh, it's a heavily subsidy-prone economy. And because we are a poor country, in Bangladesh was a poor country, they tried to subsidize in the beginnings in the 1950s and 60s, but then slowly took out subsidies. In beginning, there were subsidies in every aspect, like input provision, output subsidies, and all infrastructure provision, seat support, and everything. But slowly, the subsidies were taken off, and it was liberalized, Total production kept increasing, but they were often on crisis uh, because of the volatility of the markets. 
and slowly only the fertilizer subsidy was reintroduced for recently, about 2012 or something, and there was some modification in the way the distribution of the peace and other goes. So over time, the subsidy has reduced, but Bangladesh is now officially self-sufficient in food grain production. So that is possible, but if you look at right either or case, like is full trade liberalization or not, that is not going to happen, because in theory, the trade liberalization actually helps exporting countries. Those who export food, it is good for them. Mm-hmm. But those who are importing food, like Korea or Bangladesh, they, it will always feel bad. They will be pressured on high input cost and low output price. All right. So that is the answer. So that is how we, it needs to be a balanced one. For example, Thailand has a, a export subsidy, a export tax instead, because they want to keep food in the country. In the past, they used to have export uh, tax for the exporters for rice. And, but they also have subsidies. The water irrigation was heavily subsidized, mm. basically free, but other inputs were not subsidized. So there was a combination. You cannot have full trade liberalization because as a theoretical requirement for a trade liberalization requires you play in a level field, but it is not a level field. There are hundreds of sellers, but very few buyers. Right. Yeah, some very fascinating points. Professor Raman, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye. That was international development professor from Plymouth University in the U.K., Zanzidar Raman. Uh, professor Young, I imagine you may have a slightly different take on uh, on uh, his perspective as far as liberalization, as far as trade, and also, of course, uh, uh, how domestic economies deal with their agricultural uh, yeah, uh, I mean, the uh, countries do have uh, export taxes on some agricultural products. That's why they were talked when there was a sort of a global uh, reduction in agricultural output, 2007, 2008, I think. Uh, they were talking about food wars because a lot of food developing countries would not let the uh, farmers export as much as they wanted. Uh, and that obviously made uh, p- uh, food ex- importers more paranoid. Uh, but at least for the Korea situation, uh, if I may, uh, correct Professor Rahman a bit, uh, in terms of the actual amount of money, uh, then yes, uh, the cap program in the EU, uh, is, uh, substantially bigger than Korean program. But if you talk about it in terms of subsidy rate, I think, as I mentioned before, Korea is higher than European Union. Uh, but having said that, uh, I think it all goes back to the uh, sufficiency uh, rate that we talked about earlier. Korea food sufficiency rate right now is only about 49%. And so if we want Koreans to be self-sufficient in food, we're going to either have to change the mix of food we eat or we're going to have to increase production by at least twice uh, uh, of everything, meat, uh, vegetables, and so on. And as I mentioned, uh, as far as I know, that's not going to be possible given the physical characteristics of Korea. Um, in that case, the best food uh, self-sufficiency uh, or best food policy that Korea may be able to have is to make sure that we have good import sources for food. Mm-hmm. And that means diversified, not necessarily depending on foreign uh, large conglomerates, maybe making direct deals. Just with, like energy import yeah. policies, right? Yeah, I mean, we used to go through a middleman, but now Korean companies have direct deals with produ- uh, producers. So uh, I think that Given Korea's geographical situation, that may be a better move than trying to uh, 
gets uh, get food out of ground that can only uh, produce certain amount of output. It was interesting how Professor Rahman did say, well, let's not talk about Europe. They are massively subsidizing <laughs> their sector. But one case may be his home country, Bangladesh, which is now, I suppose, a country that can produce, at least with grains, what he was talking about, carbohydrates uh, uh, provide for the population in that sense. We seem to be here in Korea sort of... Um, in that rock and a hard place situation, we don't have the wealth of the European nations per se, but at the same time, our population um, is a little bit wealthier than Bangladesh's population. So, if you look at grain prices, and okay, we might grumble that domestic rice is expensive, but in that whole basket of goods and what we have, it probably isn't the most price. If if we were all destitute and poor, you can be sure that the government would do away with everything, and we would see um, prices dr- plummet, right? Well, somewhat, but you have to also remember that Korea, uh, we're actually self-sufficient in rice right now. We're uh, our uh, production is uh, it depends on year to year, but hit somewhere between 95 and 105 percent of domestically uh, grown rice is right. sufficient. Yeah, okay. So uh, it's uh, the problem is actually that sometimes when we have overproduction, we uh, store rice and we don't know what to do with it. Um, and also, we don't just eat rice anymore. We eat a lot more meat, we eat a lot more wheat, and those are far from being self-sufficient. So uh, if you talk about, if you want to talk about food sovereignty, that usually uh, applies to concept of everything that you eat, not just rice. And the reason that we're fixated on rice is partially because of cultural reasons, partially due to economic reasons. Uh, but uh, if you want to talk about food sovereignty, then we have to go beyond rice. Yeah, we've been mentioning how rice consumption per capita has been dropping over the years, uh, and it's quite dramatic, that rate of drop. But we do have countries like North Korea, right? And uh, we have these stockpiles, these uh, storage issues with rice. Obviously, politically and international diplomacy-wise, there are some thorny issues at play, but uh, this idea of alleviating hunger in a country that is not self-sufficient like North Korea, obviously with the long-term goal of reunification, that is one thing. That was what we used to do with some of the uh, surplus rice or imported rice uh, before uh, 2010. Uh, We used to take the rice and storage and give it to North Korea, uh, and that... uh, Back then, we, ha- we were obligated to import a certain amount of rice because we were keeping rice out of, uh, out of the domestic market. Uh, but as a price for that, we had to, it's a paradox, but we had to import rice. We didn't want to uh, lose, uh, put that uh, rice in the domestic uh, market, so we gave it away. Yeah. And we gave it away to North Korea, but we don't ha- seem to have that option anymore, at least under mm-hmm. the current administration. Final question. We've got 30 seconds. Um, TPP, some of these other issues, do you feel that there will be a major decision made on rice uh, in the near to midterm future? Uh, I think so. I think the general government feeling is that we want to join the TPP, but in order to do so, we'll have to do some tough uh, negotiations in the agricultural sector, and this will definitely come up. Yeah, so as we said, the the day of reckoning of whether, when it's going to come, despite all these bilateral FTAs that have been signed, despite all the wranglings with the WTO, looks like the TPP may uh, be the venue for that. Uh, Professor Young, as always, thank you so much for the analysis. Always great to have you here, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me.